If you have, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, it'd be great for you to have a Bible. So there are church Bibles at the back, um, in the back. If you can pick one up or take one, take your Bibles out, that would be great. And as we do that, let's uh, pray. Make sure things don't burn. <laughs> let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. Um, we thank you that this is an undeserved gift. Um, we thank you that you love us so much to give us this gift. And we pray that we'll once again see the amazing grace that is your son, that we will be able to see you and that we'll be able to worship you. And we pray that you will speak to all of us that Christ that became incarnate 2,000 years ago will be made new and real in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. It's always a perilous thing, dangerous thing to guess people's age. So let's try to guess uh, some people's age. So um, here, here are some few pictures that's going to come up. This, um, uh, Demi Moore, Demi Moore. Guess how old she is. This is a photo that's been taken in 2013. 42 is the best guess so far. 50. 47, 46. I mean, she looks like she could be in in her mid-30s, but she's actually 51. 51. Could you believe it? I mean, with the plastic surgeries and things, I mean, I... So here's um, Barack Obama. Barack Obama. 40, 300, 300 is definitely wrong. 45. Um, it was really amazing, amazing. If you look for his picture in the beginning of his presidency and, and his picture now, he looks much older now. But he's actually one year older than Demi Moore. He's 52. 52. Um, the next one. This picture was taken in 2007. Facebook is a dangerous thing. He's obviously about 30 years old there. <laughs> he has grown a bit older since, since 2007. There we go. 29. Good guess, Kareen. Good guess. Next. Here's another person. who This is uh, taken in her birthday. Any guesses? 26. It's a pretty good guess. She's obviously something like 22 or something. Let's move on. Well, um, it's always a dangerous thing to guess somebody's age, um, but in some ways it's easy, easy to remember Jesus' age, right? Because the Western calendar has divided, um, divided the history according to at, the bir- at, at Jesus' birth. So years before Jesus is called B.C. It's literally before Christ. And years after Jesus' birth is A.D., Anio Domini, which means in the, na- in the, in the year of our Lord. So when shepherds gathered around Jesus 2,000 years ago, uh, they're, mistake, uh, they're, they're, they're forgiven for mistaking Jesus' age as maybe just a few hours old. He was, in fact, much older than that, which is what our text tells us. So look at our, how, how our reading starts in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. He was before the whole creation 
Before the, before the shepherds, before everything, and Paul continues in verse 15 and 16, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or author- powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. And do you see the emphasis in all things? All things, that phrase is repeated in verse 15 and 16 and 17. And verse 16 is really an explanation of what all things is all about. All things, things um, in heaven and on earth, visible and, uh, and invisible and so on. Everything was created by him and for him. Later on in his life, Jesus, uh, in John chapter 8, says he saw Abraham. And this amazed Jew, Jewish person says, well, you, you're not even 50 years old. How could you have seen uh, Abraham? And Jesus' answer is, before Abraham, I am. I am is the name of our Lord. I am. I am who I am. And Jesus is claiming to be God there. Before the whole creation, he was. So the language of the firstborn, they take in verse 15, isn't saying that Jesus is the first among all the creation. The context doesn't allow that. He's not the first of the created ones. But he is saying that he is the Son of God, the one who inherits all things that is of God's. So the ancient, ancient rule of primogeniture, the, the ancient rule that the first son inherits all things that is of his father's, that's what he's talking about. All things that is God's is his he is God's son, the one whom, who will inherit all things. And of course, our text says, takes that a bit further, saying that though in Genesis, in the very beginning, the first chapters of the Bible says that it is God who created all things, Paul here says that Jesus is that God, that he is the image or the reflection of the invisible God. Actually, for... I always forget to do this. Um, I, I forget to forget everything. Uh, even when I bring things, I forget to bring it up, up the front. This is the mirror, right? When, Jesus, uh, when Paul says Jesus is a reflection, he's talking about this, this sort of reflection, the image. When you see the thing, thing that's reflected, God is the God and Jesus is the image that's reflected in the mirror. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen God. So Paul says that this is this very unlikely thing. I say this, uh, this is unlikely because Jewish people couldn't have imagined of anyone, any human being claiming to be God. Because for a Jewish person who believed in one God, this would, be the, this would have been the definition of blasphemy. For someone to say that he is God. But Paul, who wrote this letter, a Jewish elite, and not just Paul, Peter and all the Jewish people, the disciples who gathered around Jesus, started to claim that Jesus is God, God who created all things, that all things are held together by him. And what it's really saying in this text is that Jesus is supreme over all things, supreme over everything that he's created, and included in all things are us. Including all in this, all things are us. He is supreme over our lives. He is supreme over your children. He is supreme over all things that you have, your minds and bodies and hearts, tongue, eyes, dreams, the 
your past, your future, your present, Jesus should be supreme over everything that you are. He claims us as his own. That's what Paul is saying here. The baby that was born 2,000 years ago is our Lord who owns us. So let me ask you this question. Who is supreme over your life? Who is supreme over your life? Who calls the shots in your life? Who do you listen to? Is it your wife? Is it your husband? Is it your children? Is it money? Is it pride? What's the thing that you make sacrifices for? For men, it tends to be the job, and for women, it tends to be many times relationships. What is it for you? And in this Christmas season, shouldn't, it be, should, don't, shouldn't we remember that? Shouldn't Jesus be supreme over our life? Because Jesus is not just a baby. Jesus is not just a great man. He is supreme king over everything, all created things, including us. Are we listening to him? Are we making sacrifices for him? Many people say, that believe that Jesus is God. Many people believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has forgiven our sins. Many people say that we believe this, but we want Jesus to come into our life and basically smooth out the edges, the rough edges. Help me when I'm in trouble. Improve my life here and there a bit. But here's the thing. This is what this, is what this text tells us. This is what Christmas tells us, that that is not an option. For Jesus to change our lives a little bit, to smooth out the rough edges of our life. As somebody said, Jesus is not a supplement. He's not a vitamin pill. He's not a lucky charm, and he's not our buddy. He can't make our life just a little bit better. He didn't come to supplement our life. 2,000 years ago, he came to change our lives. He came to give us, give us second birth. He, he came to change the, the fundamental reason of why we live and how we live, how we look at the world. He came to be our Lord as much as he came to be our Savior. When you see Jesus, who was born, he's all He's all of our Lord. He, he's, the, he's the one who owns our life. Or he's nothing. You get all of Jesus, who is the creator of the whole universe, everything that is around us and ourselves, or you get nothing. You can't get something in between. That's what Christmas is all about. God became a human being as our Lord he came as our Lord, the creator of the whole universe. But I know, but I know that this is a hard thing to do, to invite Christ as our Lord, because we've been living in our selfish ways for so long. Since graduating from college, um, I have pretty much lived on my own. And I've eaten, I, I, I eat when I want to, you know, sometimes I, I I do the dishes probably maybe once or twice a week. I, I mean, I do the dishes when I want to because I live by myself. I clean when I want to. Um, and I'm slightly worried that if I ever get married, then 
um, that I'll just be so selfish because I'm so used to being on my own and doing things on my own terms. And this is the first thing that people say that they find out about themselves when they get married. They find out how selfish they are because they have to make space for this other person. You have to check with this other person if you want to go out or invite friends in. You have to, you have to make space for that person even in deciding when you, uh, the time that you go to bed. And when you have children, well, that's even rougher. You have to be even more selfless. The point is that when we are used to being selfish, it is difficult to start being selfless, to make room for somebody to enter into our lives. And the thing is, we have lived as not just selfish people, but the Bible calls us as God's enemies. We have lived as God's enemies, and inviting Jesus as the king over our life will be difficult. And enemies is exactly what we have been. Just take a look at verse 21. This is what Paul says, once you were enemies in your minds because of your evil, evil behavior. It's not just here. It's everywhere in the Bible. It does call us enemies. People, by their very nature, do things that are against God's rules and God's laws and God's nature. You might be saying, you might bristle at this and say, I'm not God's enemy. I'm not, I've never been God's enemy. To be an enemy of God is to be like Osama bin Laden or, uh, or Hitler or something. But how is it that we consciously, not just unconsciously, consciously do things every day that are against God's laws? Things that God hates. Just think about the Ten Commandments. We all know that lying is bad, but we've all lied. We all know that stealing is bad, but we've all stolen. We all know that adultery is bad, but we've committed time after time in our minds. We know that selfishness is bad, but we're so constantly selfish. We all know that pride is bad. Excessive pride is bad, but then we're so proud. We all know that greed is bad, but... We want to justify greed in our minds. We think that hatred, discord, jealousy, anger, fits of anger, selfish ambition, envy, drunkenness, and all these things are bad. But we partake in it, all of it, sometimes, most of it, most of the times. Many of us don't think that we are enemies of God. But what this text tells us is that we demonstrate our contempt for God and God's laws with our actions. We're enemies. We demonstrate that we're enemies of God because of our actions, because of your evil behavior. And this makes us unclean before God. And this is true for all of us, even, um, even people who you think are the best of humanity. I was, looking at, uh, I was watching an American uh, sitcom um, 30 Rock, and it had this scene where people are walking in front of high-definition TV. You know, people who look beautiful normally are walking through the high-definition camera, and it shows, and it, it, it was exaggerating things, but you could see the pimples, and you could see the hair sticking out of place, and, and people are just ugly. That's what we are like. From afar, we might look nice, but actually, when you zoom in, you look closely, everyone is blemished. Everyone has uncleanliness written all over them because of our constant rebellion against God. And the thing is, we cannot cleanse ourselves. We can't do it. Do you remember the 1985 song, uh, We Are the World? 
We are the world. The, the, this is a lyric uh, produced by Michael Jackson and Lionel Rich. We are the world. We are the children. That song. These are the lyri- lyrics. Um, we are the ones who make a brighter day. day so let's start giving. There, there's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true we're making a better day. Day just you and me. But the sad truth is that the world hasn't changed much for the better since 1985. It seems that our sinful nature, this tendency to oppose God and God's rule are written in us so that we're not able to rescue ourselves, not able to save our own lives, as this song um, proclaims. And here's the thing. As cozy and nice as Christmas uh, time feels, God came in a manger. God came in a manger on a rescue mission. He came to reconcile humanity to himself, uh, to humanity that has become his enemies, the ones who cannot stand in front of God. And the message of Christmas is that God came to save sinners. And my question to you, once again, all of you, is whether you, you understand yourself as a sinner. If we don't, then we can't receive this Christ child. We cannot receive what this baby offers to each one of us. We cannot receive his salvation, the forgiveness of sins, if we don't recognize our, ourselves as sinners. Jesus says to a group of people who thought they were righteous, He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Enrico Tice, as Christianity in Christianity Explorer, constantly says, it's not, Christianity is not for those who think they're good enough. Christianity is for those who think they are bad enough. People who recognize themselves as sinners. We have all been enemies of God. And if we don't understand this, we cannot understand what Christmas offers to each one of us. But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not yet. He sent the son, not yet. Uh, well, go back. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Anita. Yeah. Um, um, and it, yeah. Um, what Christmas shows is that is this undeserved grace, that while we're still sinners, God loves us and God gives himself to us. And it's a curious thing that Santa came to be a symbol of Christmas, isn't it? Um, Because Santa, or at least Santa in this well-known song, is kind of scary. You know the song. I mean, his song starts out with a warning, right? You better watch out. (laughs) If you want to cry, no, you shouldn't cry. You better not cry. I'm telling you why Santa is coming to ta- town. He's making a list. He's t- checking it twice. Going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa is coming to town. He sees you when he's sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. According to the song, Santa is a little bit creepy. He sees you when you're sleeping. He sees you when you're awake. He's making a list of everything that you're doing, good or bad. But maybe you think that's what God is doing. Making, it sees everything, and he's making a list of things that are good or bad. 
But maybe, uh, but this is where Santa and God is so different. Uh, Santa gives you what you deserve. If you haven't cried or pouted or watched out in general and be good in general, you get a gift from Santa. But if you haven't, then you don't get anything. But God, while we were still sinners, the next slide, God sent his son to each one of us, despite the fact that we all deserve condemnation. God sends his son to reconcile us to himself. The people who have constantly rejected him, rebel against him, ignore him, are ungrateful to him, act out against him. God, 2,000 years ago, sent his son. And look at how Paul puts it in verses 19 to 20. For God was pleased to, to have the fullness, his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So God sends his son, he lives and he dies for us, sheds his life, sheds his blood on the cross so that we might be reconciled to him. And whoever trusts him is now considered holy and blameless and unblemished, freed from accusation. And that's what verse 20 tells us, of 22 tells us. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusations. That's what this baby promises us in Christmas, that whoever trusts in him will receive him, who will receive um, what he deserves, holiness, unblemished life, freedom from accusations. Let me end uh, with uh, just this thought. Uh, I think getting a, a good gift uh, for somebody is always very difficult. Um, uh, I think you can get, you can receive a good gift, I think, in two ways. One way is when you know, when you know what this other person needs. Or my mom asks me, you know, my mom's very straightforward, and she says, just get me this, and it's usually expensive things. Um, that's fine, because that's what she needs. Um, and and uh, when you know that you, somebody needs something, you can ask for it. And when you get it, it's a good gift, because this is something that you will use again and again, something that you need. And there are people here, I think, here, who may feel like they need Jesus. As you've been hearing um, this Christmas message, as, been think, as you've been exploring the Christian faith, you're thinking, I need Jesus in my life. Come into my life. Ask for him. Ask for him to come into your life. He is the greatest gift that you can receive. But maybe there are also people who think, well, I'm not, I'm not sure whether I really need this gift. Um, but the other kind of good gifts is somebody who knows you better, right? Who knows you better than you know yourself. Um, uh, I forgot once again to bring this, but I received this pocket knife uh, gift a long time ago. That's a, a bit of a keychain. Uh, I've actually, since uh, I've lost this, I had 
something similar. But anyway, the, 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 idea, the, the, the thing is, when I received this gift, I didn't even know it existed. It was this little pocket knife that's a key, that was a keychain. It had uh, a little knife in it. It had a, a, a wine opener in it, a little um, can opener and things like that on it. Um, and I used it all the time. I didn't even think I needed it until I had it. And I promise you, if you don't think that you need Jesus in your life, I promise you, Jesus is that sort of gift for you. Even if you don't think you needed him, you need him now. Ask him to come. Ask him to come and reveal himself to you. Because once you have Christ, you will know that Jesus is the greatest gift that you could have ever received from anyone. He is our creator. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he gives himself. And yes, as we go back to the first point, this does involve making sacrifices. This does involve making room for him to come into our life, to rearrange our life around him. And that, at times, is difficult. But when you receive him, you receive eternal life. You receive righteousness. You receive forgiveness. You receive holiness, acquittal, and most incredibly, you receive God himself. God comes to live in you, and he will remain with you always. What a great news that is. And for those of us who have accepted him already, let's celebrate. What a great gift that he is. Let's pray.